Welcome back, Utah skiers and riders, to this episode of Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast presented by High West Distillery. Nice to have Utah's own Pixie and the Party Grass Boys kicking it off. Ski Utah's Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery, Utah's first legal distillery since 1870. High West's passion is crafting delicious and distinctive whiskeys and helping people appreciate whiskey all in the context of our home here in the American West. If you're visiting this winter, join me at one of High West's three must-visit locations in Park City and Wanship, just a short distance out of town. Welcome to our episode sponsors, the Stein Erickson Realty Group and its new Stein Erickson Estates and Deer Valley Resort, where I enjoyed some great runs just this morning. There's a saying that there are no friends on powder days, but if you could, I would suggest that our guest today, Utah's Jim Steenberg, would be a great friend to have. For over a half century, Utah has been known as the home of the greatest snow on earth. But what's the science behind it? Do you know the three ingredients to Great Pow? And what role does Goldilocks play in all of this? Our guest on Last Chair this episode is an atmospheric science professor and an author who literally wrote the book on the secrets of the greatest snow on earth. Jim Steenberg grew up in upstate New York and was no stranger to deep snow, but a college trip with his father to Utah introduced him to the Wasatch Mountains. A job offer to teach at the University of Utah came next, and the rest is powder skiing history. His book offers a wealth of information on Utah powder and is a faithful companion for any resort or backcountry skier. Jim took a break from skiing and teaching to chat with Last Chair. Stay tuned, you'll learn a lot today. Jim Steenberg, welcome. Thanks for joining us on Last Chair from Ski Utah. Great to be here. Now, Jim, I know uh, it's been great at the resorts. I know you love to be in the backcountry. Have you been able to make any backcountry lines lately? Yeah, my shoulder's been keeping me off the backcountry skiing for a couple weeks now. I'm just about to start going out again, but I have had some pretty good resort days. It's really been fun out there. I've, I've really had a good time. By the way, we're recording this the first week of January for anybody listening. And as always, there's always snow in the forecast. And we have an extraordinary forecaster here to help tell us the story. Jim Steenberg, the author of Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth. And before we get into the details of the, of the weather and the snow and so forth, Jim, how did you make your way to Utah? Where did you grow up and what initiated your passion for winter sport? Yeah, I grew up in upstate New York in the Southern Adirondack Mountains. And so, you know, my dad was, we were doing a lot of hiking and we started doing a lot of cross-country skiing when I was a kid. And that's what got me really interested in the weather because the weather in the Adirondacks is awful, especially if you want good skiing. So I got really excited about being able to forecast winter storms. So I, you know, I, I got my undergraduate at Penn State. That was a colossal disaster from a skiing standpoint, but a great place to go to school. And then uh, I did my PhD at the University of Washington, which was great because I could ski pretty much all year long. And I got really lucky. I got a job offer from the University of Utah and I came here and I've been, ever, been here ever since. It's an incredible place to live. The skiing is close and, you know, even the summers in Utah are fantastic. So, Were there, were there days at Penn State where you were saying, why didn't I go and go to school at Utah? Yeah, quite a few. <laughs> Uh, actually, Penn State was a fun place to go to school, but from a ski standpoint, it was pretty pretty difficult. I would basically, you know, bolt home for for spring break and winter break and ski every day I, I could. Growing up, did you have any experience skiing in the Western Mountains? Uh, not really. Uh, my first trip to uh, the Western United States, my dad and I came to to Utah when I was uh, a freshman in college, so that was my first uh, experience skiing in Utah and skiing in the Western United States. And, you know, we skied at five different resorts. We based out of Salt Lake City. But one of the best days I had was I, I took a powder lesson at, at Alta and, you know, I had my first real uh, deep powder ski experience in the Western United States uh, during that class. I think it had snowed about 18 inches. It was a bluebird day. And that, you know, that pretty much meant I was 
definitely going to be moving here someday. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. It is. I, I mean, I remember my first experience. I grew up in Wisconsin, so I had less vertical than you did out in New York and probably a good amount of snow, but not as much. But I remember my first experience and coming out to the Western Mountains and coming out to Utah in particular. And I think it was I think it was probably in 1973 or so, but there was a massive storm over the Christmas holiday that closed the Cottonwood Canyons. There was so much snow. Uh, and, and I think you may even know some of the historical dates of those big snows from back then. Yeah, there was a big event. I think it was in 73. I don't know if it lines up perfectly. I there's one I, I remember going through and I forget the date where they actually shot a you know, one of the big guns maybe it was a 75 millimeter howitzer from the the dock at Snowbird, <laughs> you know, something that could never happen today. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's some events. And of course, the canyon used to close for very long stretches early, early in the day, you know, back in the day before we had a lot of good avalanche control work being done there, the early days of Alta, the canyon would get closed for days at a time. Today, it's much better, but still there's times when Mother Nature uh, wins the battle, at least for short stretches. So tell us a little bit about the, the role that you have at the University of Utah. At the University of Utah, I'm a university professor. So I teach classes in, in weather forecasting, something we call synoptic meteorology. Uh, I teach mountain meteorology classes, and I'm teaching a, a brand new class in the spring called Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth, which is basically all about atmospheric and snow science for skiers. It's a pretty exciting class to put together. And then I also have a pretty good research program, and we spend a lot of our time looking at winter storms and trying to improve their prediction. So it's, a, it's great for a snow lover like me to be able to live somewhere where I can ski a lot, but also where I can do great research. So, so Jim, you mean a student can actually take a course now for university credit on the greatest snow on earth? That's right. Atmos 1000 at the University of Utah. It's called Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth. Uh, it's a general education science class can be taken by anybody at the university and uh, it can also be taken through our continuing education class, our continuing education program. If you're not a University of Utah student, I, I've got to check this out. Let's talk a little bit about the book and what you had been skiing out here for some years. Uh, this was your home. The mountains are your passion. What gave you the impetus to write the book about the greatest snow on earth? Well, it was really a process. You know, if you if you ride chairlifts with people all the time and then they find out you're a meteorologist, they start asking you a lot of questions. Sometimes about, you know, if it's snowing right then and there, how much snow are we going to get? Or if it's not snowing, when's the next storm going to come? But I'd also get lots of questions like, you know, is Utah snow really the greatest on earth? You know, I had some pretty good insights on that and other topics I was constantly getting questions on, you know, on the chairlift or on the skin track in the backcountry. And so I finally hit me, you know, I could write a whole book around all this. And so that's what I did. It was amazing. You know, what, what I really loved about the book is the research that went into it. All of these amazing factoids. When and where were the biggest storms? What's the average snowfall? I mean, you have a lot of data in there. You know, that's what I think about all the time. I'm trying to find deep powder like everybody else. Uh, the only advantage I have is, you know, I'm a meteorologist, so I can look at all the computer forecasts and I can try to get a handle on, you know, where we're going to get the snow in, in a given storm or when the next storm is coming. So, the idea behind the book was to provide some insights into that. You know, this is a little bit uh, off the path, but do do you do you get a sense that today's meteorologists, the uh, the people who are really getting into these micro forecasts, are becoming more and more popular with outdoor recreational enthusiasts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at a company like OpenSnow.com, you know, where they're providing detailed weather forecasts for skiers. You know, I think it's, they're putting out a good product, but, you know, more the, the key to all of that is our computer models keep getting better and better and better and more and more detailed and more and more accurate. You know, we know they're not perfect, but the forecasts today are so much better than they were 15 or 20 years ago that you can now have a, you know, a lot more reliability in terms of anticipating the next storm. We had Evan Thayer from Open Snow on the podcast a year ago and uh, had him on a uh, webinar presentation just a few weeks ago. And it's, it's fun to talk to him and, and guys like you who are able to assimilate this data to make it easier for us who are looking for that deep powder stash as to how to best find it and when it's going to appear. Yeah, that's actually an important skill to have as a meteorologist. We call it learning how to sip from the fire hose. 
the fire hose is just this incredible amount of data that comes in computer forecasts, radar data, satellite data, you know, it's, it's an overwhelming amount of information. And, and one of the talents you have to have as a meteorologist is, meteorologist is know how to parse through that quickly and really come up with a forecast in a short period of time. So your book has a lot of detail, a lot of science. And, you know, I, I, it, it, some parts of it, I'm like, my head is just spinning. There's all of this data. But maybe you could distill a few things down for us. And I have a really simple question that I don't think I've ever even asked myself. But what is snow? What is snow? Uh, that's actually a hard question to answer because I, I, I've worked on snow so much, I want to get into a lot of detail. Uh, at its simplest... You know, it's just basically, uh, you know, snowflakes is one example. You know, this is a, a pure snowflake or a pure ice crystal is kind of an interesting thing. It actually grows not from water freezing, but from water vapor condensing directly into solid ice. When you look at, for example, the beautiful six-armed Alta snowflake, for example, uh, the way a snowflake like that grows, a snowflake like that is called a dendrite. And the way a dendrite like that grows is from water vapor condensing directly into ice. So it never actually becomes a liquid. Uh, real snowflakes can have some, some part of them that has uh, come from liquid water freezing into ice. We call that rhyming. But uh, yeah, these dendrites are really quite, uh, quite interesting in how they grow. So there are different types of snowflakes. I know that as a kid, I learned that, you know, no two snowflakes are exactly alike. Uh, can you describe the differences between different types of flakes and different types of snow or the white stuff that falls from the heavens? Yeah, definitely. The, you have with snowflakes, the shape that a snowflake assumes depends on the temperature and the humidity. And so you get different shapes of snow crystals depending on what the temperature and the humidity are. Sometimes they form needles or columns. Sometimes there are these dendrites. There's different types of dendrites. There's stellar dendrites and different types of these dendritic crystals. And so the types of snowflakes you see are really dependent on the temperature and humidity where the snowflake grew. And of course, snowflakes are falling. So they're experiencing different uh, temperatures and humidities as they fall. And that's why you have such a diverse, you know, diff different types of snowflakes in a given storm. And those are the pure snowflakes. And then in a real storm, all kinds of wild things can, can happen because clouds, ironically, are, I have, even when they're below freezing, some of the water in these clouds has not frozen. And we call that supercooled liquid water. So the cloud droplets aren't frozen yet. But when they run into a snowflake, they freeze on contact. And the extreme example of this, when you get lots of, of cloud droplets hitting snowflakes, is they, they form grapple. The, the freezing of these liquid droplets on the snowflake forms something called grapple, which is like a styrofoam ball. And if you've ever skied, say, at Alta on a good day when it's grappling a lot, it's really great skiing. It's higher density snow, but it's really smooth and fast and fun to ski on. And I sometimes tell people I, I would take a good grapple storm over a powder storm sometimes. So anyway, this is where we get all kinds of different snow, different densities, different water contents. Uh, Mother Nature just throws a lot into these winter storms to, to give us the storms and the types of snow we get. Grapple is a fascinating thing. And I know that kind of when it starts, it's pelting you in the face and you're like, oh, man, this is going to be miserable. But a little bit of grapple on a nice hard groomed surface is really fun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially in steep terrain, uh, it's just a lot of fun to, to ski on. I can remember when I lived in Seattle, some of the best ski days I had were days it grappled all day long. And it was just a lot of fun to ski. Let's talk a little bit about the impact of elevation. And those of us who live out here, and I'm sure the visitors who've come to Utah, when you're climbing up bigger little Cottonwood Canyon and you're gaining elevation, you're going up Parley's Canyon to Park City, you watch the thermometer in your car and it's dropping little by little as we gain elevation. And that, that's understandable. How does that impact the type of snow that is falling and hitting the ground at different elevations? Yeah, there's a, a number of different ways. One, of course, depends on the temperature of the storm. We do get storms here where it's raining in the valley and it's, it's snowing at the ski resorts. So one thing that can happen is you can ascend up through the what we call the transition zone or the melting layer. On average, in the central Wasatch, the snowfall, annual snowfall, increases about 100 inches for every 1,000 feet that you go up. 
So as you go up, for example, Little Cottonwood Canyon, you're down at the mouth of the canyon, you're at 5,000 feet. And then you drive up to say Snowbird where you're at 8,000 feet. The increase in the average annual snowfall is about 300 inches. Uh, and of course, you know, once you get to about mid-mountain Snowbird, you're up to 500 inches for the annual, but it's about 100 inches for every thousand feet you go up. So in terms of finding powder and that sort of thing, there's a lot of storms where altitude really makes a difference. There are occasionally storms, we sometimes call these upside down storms, that actually produce more snow on what we call the east bench of the Salt Lake Valley, which is kind of like right up against the base of the Wasatch than it does at the highest elevations. Those happen maybe once or twice a year. Those are always the real disappointing storms for skiers. You know, you got 15 inches at your hotel or uh, at your house and you, and you get up to the mountains and you, there's five or six. Uh, but those are the exception and not the rule. Yeah. With the elevation in mind, is it a big factor for resort skiers to look at different parts of the mountain that might be a little bit higher elevation? Is that going to generally give them a better opportunity of finding good snow? Well, you know, it's, it's complicated. I, I always think about it in terms of where is the snow falling? I mean, there are times when you think about the, the Wasatch Range and the, and the ski resorts that we have here. You know, there are times when Powder Mountain and Snow Basin, uh, Nordic Valley, that area, get more gets more snow than the Cottonwoods. There's other times when the Cottonwoods get more snow. Certainly in northwesterly flow storms, for example, the Cottonwoods tend to get more snow than the northern Wasatch in places like Powder Mountain and Snow Basin. Then there are occasionally storms where the, the Wasatch back, Park City Mountain Resort and Deer Valley, get more snowfall. And those are oftentimes storms where the flow is either southerly or maybe even southeasterly at low levels so that the windward slopes of the Wasatch actually reverse. And the areas that you think are going to get the most snow actually don't. So I think more about that, the storm characteristics over altitude, unless it's a warm storm and I'm worried about rain. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about the term greatest snow on earth. And historically, uh, this was a phrase that was theoretically conceived by a journalist uh, back uh, in the 60s, I believe. Skiers for years have been coming to Utah and have been experiencing this great snow. But you decided to do the analysis and write the book about the greatest snow on earth. In scientific terms, how does Utah rank in terms of being the greatest snow on earth? Yeah, I often tell people there's not a scientific test for the greatest snow on earth. It's in the eye of the beholder. I don't think there's any doubt, though, that, that Utah has some of the greatest snow on earth, at least in the cottonwoods where it snows a lot. I, I think there's really three, you know, kind of key ingredients uh, for great powder skiing or a great powder skiing climate. One is it has to snow a lot. You know, you have to be at places that get a lot of snowfall. And that's one of the things is it's unique about Utah is we're in the interior Western United States where the snow is relatively dry, but still when you go up to Alta, it snows over 500 inches a year on average. So it's a very snowy place that gets high quality snow. Second of all, we get lots of what I call these Goldilocks storms. You know, if, if, if you get storms that produce 50, 60, 70 inches of snow at a chunk, that's not really good for powder skiing. It's too much snow. It's too dangerous. The avalanche danger is too high. On the other hand, if you get less than 10 inches, oftentimes you're skiing on the underlying snow surface and you're not getting real flotation. So you want lots of these Goldilocks storms that are, say, between 10 and 20 inches uh, in size where you get good flotation, but they're not behemoth. And we get lots of those here. Our climatology is good for that. And then the third thing is how the storm is kind of stacked. And you, what you want is storms that are maybe relatively warm and produce higher density snow to start. And then the snow gets drier with time so that the lightest snow sits on top. That's actually the best situation for ski flotation. The worst situation is to have it warm with time and have the snow get higher density with time so that the highest density snow sits on top. But Utah's climatology, especially in the Cottonwood Canyons, is really biased towards lots of pretty good powder days. I think a lot of us laypersons and uh, skiers, of course, we we look at the water content of the snow. We we have heard the terms like Sierra cement, and we've heard the terms champagne powder. How how big a factor is the humidity and the moisture content of the snow in terms of the creating quality powder skiing? 
Yeah, it's a critical part of it. But I oftentimes tell people it's not the average that matters during a storm. It's how it changes with time. So let's take Alta as an example. Average water content of snow at Alta is about 8.4%. What that means is if you were to take, say, 13 inches of snow at Alta, average inches of snow at Alta, it would melt down to about an inch of water. Okay, so for every 13 inches of snow, there's about an inch of water in it. The rest of it's air. So at Alta, that's the average water content. That's not exceptionally low. For example, if you go to Colorado, a place like Steamboat, on average, they get uh, lower water content snow than, than Alta. But what we get at Alta is a lot, of, a lot of snow, number one. And we get a lot of these storms, again, that start off higher density, maybe 10%, 11% water content, and then transition towards the end of the storm to something like 7 or, or maybe 6 or 5 or even 4% water content. That's really the secret to great powder skiing because it really helps the ski skis float. The best powder days I've had are in storms like that. When we get lots of low density snow, like say 20 inches of 4%, you know, the skiing is still fun, but the flotation, you know, is, is just not quite as good. If I can just follow up on that, Ed LaChapelle, you know, is a famous avalanche researcher, did a lot of pioneering work at Alta. He always used to say that the best powder skiing is not in the driest snow but in snow with enough body for good flotation for the running ski. And I thought that summarizes it pretty well. I'm going to take you out of the meteorological aspects of this for just a minute. And I'm just wondering how, how much of an impact is the type of ski that you're riding in different types of powder? Yeah, that matters a lot. Uh, you mentioned something about 1973. Uh, you and I are both old school enough that we, you, I spent you know this, a lot of time skiing on 204 to 210 centimeter skis that were pretty narrow and pretty stiff. You know, in the 80s, when I was doing most of my skiing, if you go back and watch ski movies from that era, you know, and, and you look at a movie like Blizzard of Oz or something like that, and people are skiing on narrow uh, slalom or giant slalom or even downhill racing skis. It's a totally different world today. Skis are more diverse. They're wider. It's so much easier to ski in powder. It's incredible. I remember back to that time period and if I, if I can recall correctly, I think my powder skis were my K2-3s, which I got because they were a little bit softer. And they were probably at least 204, 205. Uh, I can't even imagine doing that today. Yeah, I can remember skiing on a ski called the K2. It was the Unlimited VO, which was like a detuned slalom ski. That was the idea of an all-mountain ski back in the 80s. Today, it's incredible. There's an incredible diversity of skis out there, you know, for all kinds of conditions. It's amazing. And for, you know, for backcountry skiing, too, this equipment's incredibly light. Um, so it's really a great time to be a, to be a skier. Yeah, it is amazing. We've got so much good equipment. And from the resort side, so many great opportunities at resorts with the lift designs and the mountain management that we see out there today. It's really changed quite a bit since those days of old. Let's let's kind of move around the Wasatch a little bit and talk about the microclimates that we see. Those of us who spend a lot of time in the mountains know that you can be on one peak at Deer Valley and it's going to be a completely different weather system uh, a mile over at another peak at Deer Valley or Park City. And the same in the Cottonwoods. It can be different between big and little Cottonwood. Talk about the topography that we have and how that impacts the weather systems coming in and bringing us this great powder. Yeah, I'll talk first about the Cottonwoods. You know, the, it's interesting that the Wasatch Mountains around the Cottonwoods are, are kind of different than they are elsewhere. The Wasatch Mountains in general are just kind of what I call linear or north-south running ridge, especially up around Snow Basin. If you drive to Snow Basin from Salt Lake City or Ogden and, and you take Interstate 84, you know, you just drive a few miles uh, through the canyon there and you from, go from one side of the Wasatch to the other. You know, there are maybe 10, a few, a 10 kilometers or a few miles across and that's it. And they're very linear. But when you get down in the central Wasatch around the Cottonwoods, all of a sudden, the mountains get a little bit wider. In fact, they get quite a bit wider. Um, and that's important. They also get higher. You know, the, the mountains around Snow Basin are a little under 10,000 feet high. But the mountains around Little Cottonwood, the ridges that flank Little Cottonwood, are predominantly above 10,000 feet and in many places at or above, just above 11,000 feet. 
So this creates this kind of island of high terrain around the cottonwoods and especially around Little Cottonwood. And what that means is it doesn't really matter what direction the flow comes from. It has to rise over that terrain, and that's good for producing snow. And that's one of the reasons why the cottonwoods get so much snow, especially Little Cottonwood. And then what happens when those storms, and I'm looking at the typical westerly flow, what happens to those storms once they get over the Wasatch and on the other side? How does that impact us, for example, in Park City and, and Sundance? Yeah, so interesting there. Say the flows from the, say the west or the southwest or the northwest, so that the west face of the Wasatch is facing the flow. What happens there is that as the flow is impinging on the mountains, it gets forced upward. When air rises, it cools, and that's why you get condensation and you get snowfall production. But once you get across the, the Wasatch Crest, across the Park City Ridgeline, the air there starts to sink. And so when you think about the snow that falls in, in Park City, in a lot of storms, that snow is actually being generated well upstream, say over the Park City Ridgeline or over the high terrain near the Cottonwoods. It's being carried downstream and it's falling out. And we call this spillover. So you get this spillover in Park City. But in a lot of storms, it's just not as productive as it is on the windward side. And that's one of the reasons why snowfall on the Park City side is lower than it is, say, in the Cottonwoods. A lot of us who are neophyte uh, forecasters of sort, we look at lake effect. We like to talk about lake effect and say, wow, that storm's coming off the Great Salt Lake. How real is lake effect snowfall here in Utah? Yeah, it's real. It's not as important, though, as people think it is. Uh, On average, lake effect contributes about 5% of the total snowfall in the Cottonwood Canyons each, each year. On average, some years it's more and some years it's less. But, you know, if you were to take a place like Snowbird or Alta, I would say probably about 50 inches of their snowfall every year comes from the lake. People think it's a lot higher than that. Most people that I talk to, but it, it's not as big as, as people think. On the other hand, it, an interesting aspect of lake effect is it's actually most productive. The lake produces the most lake effect in the fall, in October and in November and early December. So it is really important for getting the ski season going. You know, if you get a a 15-inch lake effect storm in November, 15 inches is really valuable in November to start building the snowpack. So it's, 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 it's important, but not as important as people think it is. When you were growing up in upstate New York, uh, you would see that uh, with storms coming off the lake and coming uh, onto the Tug Hill Plateau. Yeah, so Tug Hill Plateau is actually downstream of Lake Ontario, and it gets the most intense snowstorms in the world in all likelihood. I mean, a lot of people are surprised, but upstate New York, it can really nuke in that particular area. When we did a field program there a few years ago, and I think we had four storms with a peak snowfall rate of over four inches an hour. And one of my graduate students uh, used to be a, a ski patroller at Alta, and she commented that she never saw it snow as hard at, at Alta as she saw it snow on the Tug Hill Plateau. It can really dump there. But she don't have the mountains. They don't have the mountains. I mean, there's a little ski resort there. I, I try to say my first Western U.S. powder day was at Alta, but my first deep powder days were actually at a small ski resort called Snow Ridge on the east side of the Tug Hill Plateau. I think they have 450 vertical feet, but I skied there a couple times when there was a solid 18 inches of lake effect. Let's not let that secret out, right? <laughs> yeah. Let, let's go down to southern Utah, uh, Brian Head as an example. and uh, People sometimes don't think about that, but the, the pretty good-sized mountains down there, is the weather system there similar, or because it's further south, are there other factors impacting the snowfall? Yeah, they are a little more reliant on what we call kind of the southern storm track. You know, there's just a tendency in the western United States for a lot of storms to track through the Pacific Northwest, And then there's also a tendency for storms to track across the southwest. Brian Head and and southern Utah in general is more reliant on this kind of southern storm track than the Wasatch are. As a result, their climatology is a little different. You know, there's years where they get uh, may have above average snowfall and the northern northern Utah has below or vice versa. So we're with Jim Steenberg, author of Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back to talk a little bit about how do you get rid of all this snow when it's all over the highways. We'll be right back. 
Wow, fascinating information from Jim Steenberg. I hope you're learning as much as I am. You know, it wasn't a powder day today, so I was skiing around Deer Valley on some groomers and stopped in at Stein Erickson Lodge late morning just to admire Stein's Olympic medals and just hang out and relax a little bit. Around Park City, you have many luxury living options, but I want to call your attention to a new offering from the Stein Erickson Realty Group. It's been nearly a half century since Stein Erickson established his high standard of excellence here at Deer Valley. Today, the Stein Erickson Realty Group continues to operate at his high standard with a wide range of offerings. A fascinating new jewel is available now in the Stein Collection at Deer Valley, Stein Erickson Estates, a collection of 14 luxury home sites in a gated community just minutes from the famed Stein Erickson Lodge. It's ready for you to see this winter. To learn more, stop by Stein Erickson Lodge while you're here or see details at steinsrealty.com. That's steinsrealty.com. Now, let's learn more about the greatest snow on earth with Jim Steenberg. And we're back with Jim Steenberg, author of Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth. And Jim, one of the sections that I really loved in the book was you talking about what do we do with all this snow and how does it impact things around us? And whilst as skiers and snowboarders, we're happy with as much snow falling as as the heavens want to send down. But somebody has to get it off the highways and off the buildings and everywhere else. Can you go back in time a little bit, back to the uh, 19th century, actually, when mining was a big deal in the Cottonwood Canyons, and what an impact the snow had on those mines? Yeah, you know, my usual line for people is that, especially Little Cottonwood Canyon, it's a very dangerous place if Mother Nature is left to her own devices. So without humans working to reduce the avalanche hazard, you know, Little Cottonwood Canyon is a very dangerous place. There's about 50 avalanche paths that uh, bisect the highway that goes up the canyon. And of course, you know, when you were a miner in the 1800s, you had to get up that canyon and you were doing mining and avalanche terrain. You know, there was no Utah Avalanche Center there telling them, hey, you need to be careful. And, you know, the town of Alta was pretty much obliterated by avalanches. And uh, there's not an exact count of how many people died from avalanches in the 1800s. Uh, but it's it's probably over uh, over a hundred people. So the the thing that amazes me when you drive up the Cottonwoods, as you say, there are all of these different avalanche shoots. Is the job that UDOT, the Utah Department of Transportation, needs to do to get rid of all of that snow? How important is it for UDOT and forecasters to be working together to figure that out so that skiers can safely get up those canyons? Yeah, it's absolutely uh, critical. Um, you know, avalanches, there's a thing called the avalanche triangle, which tries to emph- emphasize the, the three most important things for avalanches. And those three, three things are terrain, uh, snowpack, and weather, right? So weather is a really critical part of avalanche prediction, but also avalanche logistics, being knowing when a storm is coming in, when you're going to be dealing with increasing avalanche hazard, and preparing, for example, to uh, shoot the highway in the morning. So, you know, here in Utah, the National Weather Service provides a little cottonwood forecast in support of uh, avalanche control work and other safety activities in little in the cottonwoods. And of course, UDOT is also, you know, they have forecasters as well that help them prepare for what's coming for the interstates and the highways and the roadways so that they can be removing snow from those areas. For visitors who are planning a trip out to Utah this winter or in future years, what advice do you give them in planning their trip in those days before they fly out to Salt Lake City to look at the weather and gauge, okay, how am I going to get up to the ski area safely? Uh, Where do I want to go? Where are the best lines going to be? What are some of the resources they can avail themselves of? Yeah, I mean, well, one of the possibilities is to use, uh, you know, opensnow.com or utahskiweather.com. Utahskiweather.com is run by students at the University of Utah, you know, and, and let the experts be the ones to kind of guide them. Uh, becoming an armchair forecaster, if you're not in Utah, is, can be a bit challenging. It takes a while to get used to the meteorology around here. But looking at those forecasts uh, is pretty important. 
Um, you know, the Utah, you know, certainly if you're somebody that's thinking about riding at a resort, but going out of bounds, you know, you really want to be thinking about looking at what is happening with the snowpack and with avalanches on the Utah Avalanche Weather uh, Avalanche Center website. Um, you know, for me, it's one of those things where I try to look at it every day. So I'm in tune with what's going on. And then, you know, the last thing there in that area, too, is, you know, as soon as you leave the resort boundary, it's a, d- a different world. And so, you know, that's something where having some background and having some education can be really important as well. I know part of the fun of planning a trip, and I know this is the way that I approach things, is utilizing all the tools that you can to make sure you have that best experience. And I'm just one of those guys that just loves to get in and geek out with uh, open snow and and other tools. I'll I'll give you an example, and I I know this will ring close to home because you've been there. Uh, But I had a trip last February to Japan, and I decided to go uh, uh, out to the uh, Nagano area where I had been for the 98 Olympics and just do some skiing for a few days at Hapa One. And I remember watching, you know, open snow every day to kind of see how things were, were were falling there. But I've had some amazing snow experiences in Japan. And, you know, just to give us another example, you've spent time over there. Uh, what are the snow systems like in a place like Japan? Yeah, Japan is an amazing place. I call it, you know, I we talk about Utah snow being the greatest snow on earth. I tell people Japan is the greatest snow climate on earth. It's an unbelievable place. What happens there is the Sea of Japan is a very large body of water. It's 12 times bigger than Lake Superior, which is the largest Great Lake. And during the winter there, they get lots of cold air outbreaks over the Sea of Japan. And that produces basically lake effect snow. We call it sea effect snow. And those systems run into the the big mountains on, you know, the west side of the Japanese islands of Honshu and, and Hokkaido. And they produce prolific amounts of snow. The snowiest inhabited place on earth is Sukayu Onsen in the mountains of northern Honshu. The average annual snowfall is 694 inches. And in January, they average 180 inches of snow, which is about double Alta. So it's the surest bet for deep powder skiing anywhere in the world. The funny thing about Japan, though, is is it depends on the storms, but some storms really produce a lot of snow near the Sea of Japan, and the snowfall decreases really rapidly as you move inland. So you have to you want to be kind of in the sweet spot. Sometimes these storms produce too much snow, and you're better off moving inland to where it hasn't produced quite as much. Other times, if it's not a really big storm, you want to be skiing closer to the Sea of Japan. So that's one of the things that I think about uh, when I've been over there. You know, I spent my career working in ski racing, and as I think you know, powder snow is the worst thing that can happen to a ski race. But I know with the Olympics there in 1998, there were some really amazing powder episodes. Yeah, I, I was at the 98 Games. I was an observer of weather support for the Olympics because I was helping to do the weather forecasting for the 2002 Olympics. And, um, you know, I was there a day, and I was I was supposed to see, I believe it was the men's Super G at, at Hapaono Ski Area, and um, it was canceled. And, uh, you know, I went up and skied the upper mountain and had one of the best powder days of my life. It was me and two security guards, and that was about it skiing that day up there because everybody's there for the Olympics. They're not actually skiing. Yeah, so it was it was, it was amazing. Yep. I, I had a similar experience in 1993 working at the World Championships up at Shizu Koishi uh, in Morioka on the northern part of the main island. And it's this huge volcano where the storms would come in from the Sea of Japan and then the Pacific Ocean and just collide. And we had nothing but powder for two weeks every day. You can get that in Japan. It can just keep coming and coming and coming. And like I said, the snowfall, you know, the, the, their snow climate is a lot different from Utah's. In Utah, we tend to get storms, you know, Every year is a little different, but the average snowfall in December, January, February, March isn't that different from month to month. In Japan, it's a really peaked snow accumulation season. It starts coming on in December, and then in January, it goes absolutely nuts, and then it hangs on and goes pretty good in February, and then by March, it really starts to taper off. So they get these prolific snow totals but they really come in a very short six to eight week window where it really is nuking. Let's uh, go back to 2002. And you had mentioned that you worked as a forecaster for the Olympic organizing committee. Any interesting stories from those games? 
Yeah, I, a lot of what my team did was develop forecast systems. So we would we developed computer modeling systems that the actual forecasters uh, would would use for the Olympics. You know, what I remember most from a forecasting standpoint was actually the closing ceremonies. A lot of people didn't know this, but right before the closing ceremonies, there was a really strong cold front that was bearing down on Rice Eccles Stadium. And, you know, for the closing ceremonies and the opening ceremonies for the Olympics, you have all these, you know, incredible displays that they do, you know, when they were, and they had heated balloons and all kinds of stuff that, you know, had very low tolerances for wind. You know, the winds couldn't be more, say, than, than five or eight knots. And we had a front bearing down that had you know, behind the front, the winds were blowing like 45 or 50 knots. So we were all fearful about when this front was going to come through. And uh, we forecast it would come through after closing ceremonies. And it wasn't very long after closing ceremonies, maybe a half an hour when this front came in. If it had come in a little bit faster, it would have been a disaster for closing ceremonies. So that's, that was one of my the things I, I remember the most. Well, Mitt Romney thanks you for that. Yeah. And another thing I got to do for the Olympics, just to tell another story, a quick one, is uh, I went to the 2001 Alpine World Championships in uh, St. Anton, Austria. And the morning of the Super G, I went out and took a few laps before the race with a, a friend of mine who was, who was also there, another meteorologist. And we got on the lift with an Austrian uh, ski instructor. And he asked us, uh, who is the great American? And we said, uh, Darren Rolfs. And the, the guy looked at us and said, never heard of him. Well, uh, an hour or two later, we're at this race and the Austrians are in first and second place. And Darren Rawls is coming down the course and he crosses the finish line. And there's that brief moment where you're waiting for the, the time, you know, his result to display on the screen. And all of a sudden, boom, one, Darren Rawls, USA. He wins the race, the gold medal in the world championships. And my buddy and I look at each other and shout, never heard of him. It was just a great moment in, in U.S. skiing. I totally love that story. And having been in that stadium that day to watch Darren Rawls beat the Austrians on their home snow, never heard of him. Good for you, Jim. Yeah, it was a fun experience. And, and uh, Tom, we didn't know each other at the time. It's too bad. But that I remember that night we went to some bar in St. Anton and Rawls came in and clanked beers with everybody. And then he quickly left because I think the downhill was still to to come yeah. he couldn't go out and have too much fun yet yeah he, that was an amazing time and it was a real breakthrough for the for the team as as well and we owned saint anton there for for a, for a few days so uh, just one thing before we uh, wrap it up with our fresh tracks questions uh, just a little bit of a look into the future everyone has thoughts on climate change and what's happening or what's going to happen uh as a scientist, uh, what are your thoughts and what do you see and how is this going to impact or is it going to impact the greatest snow on Earth? Well, the planet's warming and it's going to continue to warm. Um, we certainly know that that's the case from a science standpoint today. We have good evidence to support that up from multiple, you know, multiple lines of evidence. So, you know, global warming is, is happening. It, it's caused by humans. And we are probably we're probably committed right now to additional warming for the next, say, two or three decades through through about the middle of the 21st century. The real question is, you know, will you know what will, will happen after that? Because that's strongly dependent on future greenhouse gas emissions, whether or not we continue to burn fossil fuels and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, global warming, is something that's happening, it's it is affecting skiing and it's going to continue to affect skiing moving forward. A positive thing for Utah, even though we're going, we are being affected by it and we're going to be in the future, is that our resorts are relatively high elevation. And so we're, we have a little bit more insurance, as I like to say it, for this first wave of, of global warming. And skiing will survive here longer than in other parts of the world. Well, Jim, thank you for sharing some of your research. Uh, the book is Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth, and you can get it pretty much anywhere. Uh, I just love reading this. We're going to wrap this up, Jim, with a few uh, simple questions for you just to probe a little bit more into some of your background. So are you ready to go? Sure thing. Okay. To kick it off, what's the deepest powder that you've ever skied? I skied at Crystal Mountain in Washington when they had 80 new in 48 hours and 65 new in 24. Six, so that was 80 inches of new snow. 
So how did you float in that? Not very well. <laughs> I often tell people that you'd think the skiing was great that day, but it wasn't. First of all, most of the mountain was closed because of avalanche danger. Uh, second of all, I remember we were one of the first people on the chairlift. It took us, I can't remember how long, just to break trail out to the one slope that was even steep enough to go down. And it was so deep that you really couldn't make any turns. Uh, the funny, this is a funny thing about Potter. It's too much of a good thing when it snows that much. Yeah, it certainly can be. My, my best day was uh, a mid-May day at Snowbird back in the early 90s. And I remember I was skiing with an eight-year-old friend of ours. And she was an amazing skiing, fortunately. But we had had 84 inches of snow over the preceding couple of days. And it was light as could be. And I remember going down through the trees over in the Gad Valley with her. And it was just an amazing experience. Yeah, I mean... My favorite days to ski at the resorts are storm days. I mean, I just love it when it's coming down really hard and it's free refills. Those are, for me at the resorts, those are my favorite days. So let's say you're just out having a regular old resort day. What's your favorite resort run in Utah? You know, I, I ski at Alta a lot and I, I really like skiing, you know, like Stone Crusher, uh, High Boy, like if the local phrase for it, but the High Rustler runs, those steep runs that drop right down the face. Those are those are my favorite runs. I and or if it's really blowing hard, uh, West Rustler, or, or as we like to call it, West Buffler. When the wind's blowing there, things tend to get buffed out quite a bit, and it can be a lot of fun to ski that stuff. Yeah, those are good runs. I mean, coming off Alf's High Rustler at the end of the day, there's nothing like it. So let's go into the backcountry. Do you have a favorite backcountry line that you're willing to share? Absolutely not. <laughs> that's probably the right answer there's uh well i'll say a couple things about that i don't i have some places that i like to go a lot but a lot depends on the weather and the snowpack and the avalanche conditions so i try not to think about that too much i try to let the conditions dictate where we ski and kind of and think about it from the standpoint of having options for safety more than anything else i think the most I'll, tell, I'll say the most memorable backcountry run I probably ever had was uh, skiing um, what's known as the Culpit Headwall and Culpit Gulch all the way down from the top of what's north called, I think it's North Thunder Mountain, all the way down to the Little Cottonwood. It's a very long run. It's about 5,000 vertical feet. Uh, it's pretty steep the whole way. And um, there's even a short rappel that you have to do partway down. That's that's to me is a, was a pretty fun and exciting run. Although I've skied better snow elsewhere, not for the faint of heart. Yeah, I mean it's not extreme, but it, it's definitely a a long trip to get in there and and a pretty adventurous run. Jim, what's the most unusual weather event that you have been in? Oh my God, that's a tough one. Well, that that's a hard one. I've I've experienced a lot of amazing. Uh, storms in part either through skiing or through my work I, I'll, I'll say one of the more memorable times I've had in my life was when I moved to Seattle for graduate school I was really excited about skiing someplace where it snowed a lot even though the Cascades get heavy snow they they get prolific snowfalls and the first winter I was there they didn't get any snow at all in December and I remember mountain biking uh, in the Cascades in early January but then it turned on and they got 270 inches of snow in three weeks at Snoqualmie Pass. And I was skiing almost every day and every day was, you know, was new snow. And for somebody from the East Coast, that was an amazing experience. You got to love it. So this will be easier. Favorite Utah craft beer? Mm, that's another hard one. Who do I want oh, to come on? There's so many. <laughs> that's right. I, there are I, so many. <laughs> I'll, I, I, I'll put in a plug for my friends at Epic. Um, and I, I just grab a bunch of stuff there and, and, uh, I, I usually drink, uh, I am actually a fan of porters and they have a smoked porter that I like a lot. That is a good one. I know that one. Yeah. I mean, everything in the craft beer industry seems to be about, about hops and, and IPAs and sours and things, but I really, and I like IPAs and I like pale ales, but uh, I'm a big Porter fan. 
and so I, I enjoy their smoked porter. Go big. Love it. And the last question, groomers, glades, bumps, or powder? Well, powder for sure. Bumps would definitely be on the bottom of that list. My back is old and aging. So it's almost universal. Who wouldn't want powder with the greatest snow on earth? Yeah, certainly me. That's what I live for. Jim Steenberg, thank you for joining us. It's been a delight to talk to you and learn a little bit about the science behind the greatest snow on earth. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. Thanks to Jim Steenberg for sharing his insights on the greatest snow on earth. As you plan your trip to Utah, pick up a copy of Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth. This episode has been brought to you by Stein Erickson Realty Group, featuring its new Stein Erickson Estates. Learn more at steinsrealty.com. And Deer Valley Resort, a happy 40th anniversary to Deer Valley Resort in Park City. Deer Valley revolutionized skiing by offering first-class service in the mountains 40 years ago, and that tradition continues today. One of the things I've experienced all season at Deer Valley is that its commitment to exceptional dining experiences has not changed during these unprecedented times. To keep guests and staff as safe as possible, day and evening indoor dining operations have been changed to create a larger table spacing and limited capacity. Reservations are required, but it's an easy process at DeerValley.com. I use the mobile app myself to make dining reservations all over the mountain. While things will feel different this year at Deer Valley, its dedication to providing an exceptional guest service experience remains exactly the same. I've been skiing Deer Valley a lot over the last few weeks, and I just love winding my way from mountain to mountain. Check out Magnet off the Lady Morgan Share on Empire, my favorite steep groomer on the mountain. That's Deer Valley Resort. The Ski Utah Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery. Follow our whiskey adventure on all social media platforms at Drink High West. And remember, sip responsibly. High West Whiskey, 46% alcohol by volume. High West Distillery in Park City, Utah. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit the like button and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'll be back with plenty of guests over the coming months. Now let's turn it over to Pixie and the Party Grass Boys to close out this episode. From all of us at Ski Utah, thanks for listening. I'm Tom Kelly for Last Chair, presented by High West. Have fun. It's a great day to ski.